Bobby, 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 baby. Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 12th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, how busy are you now uh, between uh, making a list and checking it twice? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess you're alluding to the fact that we're... uh, you know, in full-on rehearsals for our Boys from Syracuse concert yes. at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below. On- and with the Drinkwater Brothers, you have to check it four times, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if you got a um, message from J. Aubrey Jones, who's in your cast, but uh, last week when I said, gee, do you have any Syracuse graduates from the Boys from Syracuse? Uh, we didn't know. J. Aubrey Jones actually was a graduate hmm. of Syracuse. Class of 76. So Yes, and it. I believe he had mentioned that to me, but I, I apologize. I forgot. So <laughs> I think my brother was a graduate of 76. Is that I right? Ha- I, I will have to go back and check. I think that my brother was a 76 graduate of Syracuse. Yeah. They probably passed each other on the quad. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> if, yes. If there is a quad there. I don't know. I've never- so the boys from Syracuse coming up at 54 below on December 29th, uh, featuring the Drinkwater Brothers and many, many folks like Leah Harwitz and J. Arbor Jones, we just talked about. Uh, Christine Paul Petty. Le- Christine Petty, Paul Leggett Chase, Steve yes. Ross. Uh, let's see. Who else These are we fabulous have? Fabulous people. Katie Dixon, mm-hmm. Leah Harwitz. So, I mean, Really wonderful, Michael, and uh, you're, you're, you're filling your time well here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Katie Dixon, by the way, is someone that if you don't know her, she's going to be a revelation. She's she's done a few things. Uh, she sings a lot of light opera and, and stuff like that. Be- gorgeous voice, extremely beautiful woman. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, if it was another time, she would already be a star. Uh, it's just that uh, that mm. kind of yeah, yeah. singing is not in you know sure. so much in, in vogue in, right, in yeah. modern right. current musical theater. But she mm. uh, she's going to be 
just amazing. Mm. Wonderful. So, uh, Peter and Michael, uh, with all the supply constraints out there and people not being able to get their Christmas presents, <laughs> what kind of recommendations do you have for people to, uh, to get a last-minute gift for any books or cast recordings that you think are things that have been overlooked that we should uh, recommend? Well, um, Kevin Winkler has a book out on Tommy Toon, and um, while I haven't received it yet, I have been told by other people that it's really, really terrific. Ken Bloom has a book on UB Blake, um, done with Richard Carlin, actually, and um, that's a terrific um, examination of uh, what theater was like uh, for blacks in the 20s and um, and a a bit beyond, too. So um, those two books are really uh, quite wonderful. Michael, anything interesting happening on the cast recording side? Uh, well, of course, the West Side Story soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't checked um, the status of Doubtfire. Uh, yeah. Did, did you guys know? I haven't heard uh, mm-hmm. Have Broadway Records not doing that? or well, They may very well step up to the plate, but I haven't heard anything yet. And I certainly hope there'll be one for Kimberly Akimbo, uh, which mm-hmm. we're going to discuss later. Mm-hmm. So, and then I, I, I'd mention again the Bob Mackie book, which is just—it would be a beautiful Christmas present. It's a gorgeous coffee table book, um, just chock full of incredible text and, and beautiful color photos. Hmm. So I looked uh, the Broadway Records thing. Uh, I thought that they had announced something. It was actually Annalise Scarpacci from who's in Doubtfire. She's got uh, a, an album out with Broadway Records. That's why. Ah, ah, that's why I thought it was mm-hmm, Broadway Records. Mm-hmm. So excellent. We have lots of uh, good recommendations there. And uh, also, before we get on to our reviews, I want to remind everybody that uh, uh, Jan Simpson's podcast, All the Drama, just released to Patreon subscribers yesterday, Saturday. Uh, this uh, this month's is the 1925 Pulitzer Prize uh, uh, for Drama winner, They Knew What They Wanted by Sidney Howard. Uh, and Jan gets into that as well. It'll be available to the public next Saturday. So uh, stay tuned if you haven't heard it yet. It's really wonderful. Peter, you got over to the, uh, um, I don't know, what theater is his company playing? And I'm, I'm off the top of my head. I'm lost. I almost Jacobs. said the Stevens. It's Jacobs. at the Jacobs. I almost the said the Sondheim. Royale. I almost the said the yeah, Sondheim, really, but it's yeah. not. It's not yeah, at the Sondheim. Uh-huh. Oh, so. look, Rob Johnson has joined us. That's mm-hmm. nice, Rob. That <laughs> Rob uh, is one of our Patreon supporters who has joined us to listen live. And uh, he was making fun of me this morning because he was at uh, my alma mater, Penn State University, having breakfast at the waffle, uh, waffle shop. Uh, and so welcome, Rob. So it's at the Jacobs, Peter, and you got to see uh, Katrina Link and Patty Lapone in company, in company. So tell us about it. Well, uh, when has the number 35 ever received entrance applause? <laughs> Actually, the wild hand clapping that the audience um, gives at the start of the show is for Katrina length. But when she enters, you can't see her face because she's obscuring it with these two enormous happy birthday balloons that are shaped as a three and a five. So <laughs> because 35 is the age that Bobby is turning in this um Stephen Sondheim, George Firth masterpiece. So, it, you know, it's funny. It sounds young when one considers that this is a 51-year-old musical. And um, a personal note about many that I'm going to give here today, but um, I was there almost 52 years ago at the very, 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 very first performance of Company 
at the, ever at the Schubert Theater in Boston, March 23rd, 1970, um, one of my high holy days. When, by the way, um, another hundred people was in the second act then. So um, that was one change they made very quickly. Um, how well I recall the stony response from the aged Boston Brahmin audience. Now, in those days, Boston theater goes love to go to the tryouts. Roadshows never did as well. They, they, would, they were soft sellouts at best, but Boston audiences wanted to be first before seeing before New Yorkers or anything. So, but here was a musical that questioned the values of marriage from one scene to the next to the next. And these young, long <laughs> yoked together couples in the audience didn't want to hear their marriages, the good, the bad, and the very ugly to be examined lest they see too much, you know, marriage for them was what you matter of factly had to do when you were young. And that was that. Divorce was out of the question for many, even for those who were utterly miserable. So the stigma, the expense, the children, the need for the wife to find a job, the need for the husband to pay alimony. I mean, people stayed put. Well, as we all know, in the ensuing years, the divorce rate has soared. So audiences can relate to company now. Over the decades, uh, Sondheim was often said to be ahead of his time. But, you know, the real ahead of, t- of his timer here was George Firth, because Let's not forget that he wrote the sketches of what would become company long before Sondheim and um, Hal Prince signed on. So, even you know, divorce was certainly mentioned in musicals here and there. I mean, Panama Hiding in 1940 um, uh, it deals with divorce in a, in a bleak way. But, but think of the way Susan and Peter handle it here. You know, they get a divorce, but they still live together. Um, now, this is the only couple scene in company, I believe, um, that doesn't involve a song. So we know it's all for earth, you know, so, but just the idea of it mystified Boston audiences. Uh, I mean, in those days when you got divorced, never the twain would meet again, you know, and so, but um, many now know, uh, and more importantly, understand that the feeling of freedom is what Susan and Peter sought and needed. So even in 1970, we, we'd see musical where spouses would cheat on the other, you know, Paul Joey, 1940 again. But the way that Harry and Sarah cheat is different. I mean, she says she's given up these calorie-laden foods, and but just let him turn his back. <laughs> she's wolfing down a brownie while he, the supposedly on-the-wagon teetotaler, totally down straight bourbon while she's not watching. So... Audiences today, many of whom grew up in so-called broken homes, are far savvier about marriage and its perils, so they can be honest with themselves and nod their heads at the truths of what they've either observed or lived. And that's why when Harry says that he's sorry grateful about his marriage, the audience laughs heartily at every sorry reference, and they're silent at every grateful reference. It's very interesting to hear that. So, you know, as always, like it or not, no matter what the creators say, company is not an endorsement for marriage, even with being alive, hoping to make people believe it is. So we're back to personal notes. And I know I've mentioned this in the past for those who didn't catch those podcasts where I've mentioned it. But the original song in this place in Boston told the audience that marriage was living happily ever after in hell. Dean Jones, the original Bobby, did a press conference with me in Alabama when he was inducted into that state stage and screen hall of fame. And he told me on that first night in Boston that he knew that his days in company would be numbered as a result. And they were. So 
that's Bobby with a Y and not Bobby with an IE. <laughs> Almost sounds like a Liza Minnelli song, doesn't it? Just in case you missed the production's new slant. I know our listeners haven't, but no, they didn't have an operation. Uh, Marianne Elliott's production proceeds as if the show center has always been a woman. Sometimes the change doesn't work well. Okay. Um, in Barcelona, Bobby with a Y originally called his flight attendant uh, bedmate June, only to have her correct him and say that her name is April. Well, here Bobby mistakenly and clumsily <laughs> calls Andy Randy. Well, perhaps I'm giving too much credit to women. I don't think so, but um, I see this as a gaffe that a man would make more likely to, um, than a woman would. Um, I think a woman would know the name of the guy she's going to bed with. You know, so funny thing, you know, over the years, some have uh, insisted or at least surmised that Bobby's inability, Bobby with a Y, inability to connect with a woman means that he's gay. Sondheim and first always dismissed that as untrue. But now we have a flight attendant. An occupation that, be it accurate or inaccurate, is often considered to be the province of gays. And here's Andy in a heterosexual union. I think he should have been promoted to captain, but anyway. <laughs> Bobby with a Y repeatedly asked April to stay an extra day. And when she finally relented, he moaned, oh, God, because now he doesn't want her now that she's agreed. Now, see, I heard Bobby do Bobby with an IE uh, do the same to Andy on the cast album uh, a few years ago. And I thought, no, I don't think a woman would beg a man to stay, 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 only to wish that he hadn't said yes after he'd agreed to stick around. Uh, but what we see on stage, what the album couldn't show us, um, does work. And um, Elliot has a very clever way of handling that. Um, I've also changed my mind on you. You could drive a person crazy because originally three women expressed frustration at Bobby's inability to make a commitment. Now, hearing three men sing, it struck me as less likely that the, the commitment would be their complaint. But, you know, watching it uh, reminded me that there are some men who go crazy over women they can't have. So I'll, I'll retract my original objection on that. But I still think there's a problem after Bobby, Bobby with an IE asked the line that leads into sorry, grateful. Harry, you ever sorry you got married? You know, it's one thing for a man to ask a husband that question, but a woman asking it of a husband? Wouldn't Harry be too circumspect to answer the way that he does out of fear that Bobby might tell Sarah what he said? I mean, you know, sisterhood is powerful. So one could argue, by the way, that Bobby was originally Harry's friend before he met Sarah. Could be. If that were the case, yeah, she might feel comfortable asking him that pointed question. But we're not told which of the two she knew first. And we, in the original production, we didn't know that either. So I think it would have served the show better if Bobby asked Sarah, are you ever sorry you got married? Um mm -hmm. It would have been uh, a different take on it, too. And uh, and also nothing against um, the performer who plays um, Harry, but um, Jennifer Samard, what a chameleon. I'm telling you, this lady, I mean, <laughs> who played the crazy nun in Disaster, who played Ernestina, the hoochie coochie girl in Hello, Dolly. Uh, unrecognizable here and unrecognizable not only in the way she looks, but also 
in the way she plays. I mean, these are three distinctively different performances, and we've known her from Off-Broadway, um, and this is really a major talent, and I, I would have liked to have seen her tackle the song, but I also think it makes more sense for a woman to be asking a woman, are you ever sorry you got married, rather than a woman asking a man, but anyway. So um, I, I really scoured the title page more than once to see if there was a book revised by credit, because there are some new lines, but I didn't see anything, so... I'm going to infer that Elliot made the changes and the updating. There is some updating. Um, and I think she solved the confusing issue that's plagued companies since that first performance in Boston, you know, because over the years, some have assumed that um, Bobby only imagined this birthday party while others insisted that it actually happened. Um, but Elliot has some smart stagecraft that um, shows that, this Bobby with an IE is definitely imagining the party and flashing back to various experience she's had with her good and crazy people, her friends. So, mm. and the, the set design in bunny Christie has helped too, because she's given us a series of apartments, mostly painted in a very drab and sterile gray to show that the average New Yorker lives in pretty dull place. So so cast members just burst through the doors when their times to sing arrive and nobody notices them. So now we know that this is what's going on in Bobby's brain and not in her actual home. So it can't be real considering the games that Bobby imagines that will be played at her birthday party. This starts the second act. And I'm telling you, these these games are so puerile. Um, I, now, it could be a commitment, <laughs> a comment on how immature she believes her buddies to be, but. I mean, not since applause have I seen such stupid party games. Um, and you know, so see what you think. But anyway, ah, but not one mention of a biological clock ticking. You know, too bad George Firth is still around. I mean, for more reasons than one to add that even a quick line that would address the issue. Um, I think Elliot should have thrown a quip like, um, I've never wanted children. Growing up, I had to care for my utterly irresponsible parents. They were my children and made me see how raising a child would be so hard. Once was enough. That would do it. You know, but there's got to be that's especially because 35 is the age where um, things start getting difficult for women to bear children for one reason or another. And so that should be mentioned. Well, Peter, I haven't seen the show yet, but I'm told that that uh, the TikTok number is now uh, all about that. Well, I must say that was lost on me. Wow. Um, uh, now, uh, it may be because I'm too obtuse, but um, but I, I didn't I didn't get that. Now that you mention it, I can see what. Um, yes, I can see where that would be the case, because um, there is something involving um, people come in holding babies. So I guess that's what that, but it, it was <laughs> okay. lost on me, lost on me. So, um, my obtuseness, I apologize. <laughs> Why does Bobby only have married friends? You know, I mean, mm. that Bobby with a Y did was more believable. Um, by the way, the seven times a Godfather lyric had to be changed and it is, but what else changed a long time ago is the New York single women, um, have plenty of single women with whom they have good time and con uh, confidences. You know, we've seen them for close to a quarter century in sex in the city. Where are they here? Um, it, uh, it seems odd to me that that uh, is the case, but anyway, Oh, by the way, um, at the beginning of the show, the couples saunter down the aisles of the theater. And that includes Patty Lapone. 
Now, of course, this is not the first time she's entered through the house. She did 13 years ago when she wanted Louise to sing out in Gypsy. And the audience sang out with applause for what would be a, a Tony winning performance. But Lapone's entering the caravan of actors makes her relatively anonymous. You mean the two balloons get entrance applause and Patty Lapone doesn't? I mean, <laughs> no, not quite. Not quite. Elliot has a very smart way of having Lapone get a few minutes um, of applause uh, later. Uh, for those who are big fans of hers, that may not be soon enough, but so be it. Um, this Bunny Christie designed the costumes, too. And the one she created for Lenk, the only one the actress will wear all night, the way Sweet Charity only wore a black dress all night, shows an oblique piece of updating, too, because... I've mentioned this before, too. What has traditionally been musical theater's most valuable costume? The red dress worn by Anastasia, Annie, Desiree Armfelt, Dolly Levi, Ella Peterson, Phyllis Rogers Stone, the unsinkable Molly Brown, and both Edna and Tracy at the end of uh, Hairspray. So here Bobby wears the same shade of red, but it's a pantsuit. Does anyone still wear a dress? Aside from drag queens, you know, a pantsuit has been now for a long time. So I thought that was very, very clever. Um, uh, Christy Scenic Design has the word company spelled out on two sets of gigantic electronic letters. One set moves and anagrammed into nonsense words during another hundred people, probably to indicate the craziness of the city. But at the end of the song, a few letters to, uh, used to spell out something most apt. And um, that shows Elliot's rapt attention. Katrina Length does the job in her few solos and ancillary contributions to other songs. She's appealing, but, you know, I think her nice, broad smile may be a big contributing factor why she landed the part. I mean, she knows how to make it enthusiastic at times, not so enthusiastic at others, and even downright phony when she sees the horrors that the husbands and wives afflict on each other and pretends that nothing's wrong. So for all the talk over the decades that Bobby's a cipher, this Bobby's very, very smile seemed to fill in the blank. Matt Doyle, best rendition of Getting Married Today I have heard in dozens of productions low these 51 years. And that includes a production I saw with children. Yes, company done by children at the Young Performers Workshop <laughs> in Hackettstown, New Jersey. Uh, but on that fateful 1979 in Boston, at intermission, so many husbands were saying to their wives, or vice versa, what was she saying? Could you understand a word she said? You could hear. I'll grant you it may be because I know the song, but I don't think so. I think he articulated very well. Okay. Is this a rave for Matt Doyle? Not quite, because in the preceding the song, he shows his anxiety over getting married much too obviously. There's not a shred of subtlety here with the unceasing panicked expression on his face. His boyfriend would undoubtedly say, what's wrong? So um, that would be a problem as well. So um, so um, I think the choreography, Liam Steele, involves much too much indication. Gestures really are um, uh, overdone. And the TikTok thing that you mentioned, Michael, um, it does vaguely resemble the dream ballet. So I, I'm not seeing I missed the point, but I do think it's awfully subtle. So anyway, um, and what else? Uh, the, 
uh, most people have said the company is dated over the years, especially the scene with marijuana smoke. But um, I think the one that's most dated, uh, and I expected it to be dropped in that first Broadway revival uh, back in 1995, is when uh, there's the talk about men and women being roommates, which, by the way, I remember in Boston, I mean, got almost an ooh from the audience. Men and women living together, they're not married. They're, you mean they're just roommates? They're not lovers? I mean, a man and a woman sharing a space? Well, you know, it's happened millions of times in this city, and um, everybody's lived to tell the tale, and there's been no scandal. Everybody goes to his or her own room, and that's the end of that. So <laughs> I'm very surprised that those lines have um, been retained in the first, second, and now third Broadway revivals, because I think they should have been long gone. Oh, you know, uh, Joanne asks her husband for a cigarette in the nightclub, you know, and well, you can't do that anymore. You know, I mean, (laughs) very clever way of handling it. I would think those lines would have been dropped, but they're not. Um, So uh, but but Elliot has an answer for that, too, how uh, she can smoke in a nightclub. It sounds impossible, but it's true. But also there's that one line that probably gets a bigger laugh than ever. Remember when everybody smoked? Indeed, <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, all right. Patty Lapone does splendidly as you'd expect with the ladies who lunch, does splendidly throughout. Uh, who's better at being acerbic than Patty Lapone? So, there's no surprise there, but there is quite a surprise in an earlier scene where, in full view, she enters a bathroom, pulls down her panties, and ostensibly makes use of the toilet. Now, I know that Lapone has often been called the queen of musical theater, but who expected that we'd actually see her on the throne? Well, <laughs> anyway, that's company. That's um, uh, what I took from it. Um, a, a good, if not great, revival. I haven't seen the show yet, but I, 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 will, I think it's fair to say this. I have a big problem with the fact that this was done without George Firth's participation yeah, yeah, and also without any credit for the changes. And arguably, this is not that different from what Sondheim so vocally oh, objected yeah, yeah. to with Porky, with Porky and Bess. 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 Right, right. So I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, terrific and, observation. Yeah. yeah, that hadn't occurred to me, but you're quite right. Quite yeah. right. Yeah. Wow. So, Michael, you're going to see it this week coming up? Yes. Yes. Really looking forward to it because, uh, I, you know, I'm just so curious. Yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, ironically enough, in a tiny, tiny um, off-Broadway production, off-off-Broadway, I guess, and, um, many moons ago on Theater Row before it was refurbished, there was a production there where I met Michael. Uh, you were with Kevin McInerney. That's where we met at a production of Company. Wow. Oh, was that the New York City Gay Men's Chorus production? No, no, it was a tiny, tiny production. Um, I remember Joanne Lesner, a very talented actress, oh. was in it. Um, um, it was uh, there was a company that was on Theater Row. They did on a clear day. Uh, they did Anyone Can Whistle. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. The, the the people who ran that were from the chorus. I, I don't think. Oh, was, I see. It I wasn't see. billed as you know a chorus production. But I yes, see. That's the one I mean. Yeah. Okay. All right. I remember. Uh, do you do you remember uh, there was one wonderful thing in that production uh, at the end of Side by Side, when Bobby uh, you know does his little uh, you know dance step and there's no one to echo it. Uh-huh. I remember that he then that was the moment where he realized I don't have anybody. 
Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. and he sort of acted that through the end of that song while everyone was still doing the, you know, the big showbiz number year after year, older and older. And, <laughs> and he was standing there like looking like really, really upset. Mm-hmm. And then that, of course, led into um, the, the scene, uh, you know, the bedroom scene the, the, mm-hmm. uh, and, and all of that. Yeah. Stuff. yeah. Mm-hmm. So this uh, production of company uh received very good reviews across the board except for Sick. the New York the New, right. New York Times right which was uh very interesting so uh, i guess we will have to see if the times really still has the impact as it has in the past uh i note that on showscore.com uh all the re- uh, they they seem to have all the reviews except for the New York Times <laughs> on showscore so mm, that's I'm not, weird i'm not Are sure, you sure? Yeah, That's I'm odd. looking at it right right this moment. And wow. uh and so uh show score's got an eighty seven percent on hundred and fifty nine reviews and it's um it's only one percent negative and ninety three percent positive, six percent mixed, uh but no New York Times review here and so Well, there's another factor too, and um I really felt that the wild response from the audience I uh, had some percentage involving with the fact that Sondheim recently died, um, that it was uh, partly a tribute uh, to this, um, to Sondheim and, uh, and what he, what this show did in establishing him after a barren five years of, of Broadway uh, absence. So I, I think that's part of it too. And um, with all the talk about Sondheim, and really it's just so wonderful. I'm sorry that he had to die to get all this attention, but, um, I may have mentioned that when I went to a wedding in Boston um, over Thanksgiving um, with true civilians, people who never go to the theater, one person said to me, um, did you know that 91 year old man who died? I mean, that's that was the best that um, she could do to to identify him. But I mean, the point is, word has gotten out. And so as a result, I do believe some of it does have to do uh, the, the the wild applause and even perhaps the reviews being um, very, very good have something to do with his death. You know, de mortuinis non nisi bonum, of the dead say nothing but good. I, I, I think that's part of it. I don't resent it. I'm not saying that, but I do think it's a factor. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. And this uh, production of company has got a London cast recording. Do we think it's going to have a Broadway cast recording? Good question. So many different people. Ironically, the original Broadway cast recording didn't quite get a London recording. Uh, they just dubbed in um, Larry Kurt's voice and uh, left it at that um, and used the uh, Broadway cast album. So uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll do something like that here. Who knows? But uh, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, there have been a few recordings of company after all. So that's a company at the Jacobs Theater. I was confused before, of course, because uh, we also plan to talk about Mrs. Doubtfire, where Michael got over to the Stephen Sondheim Theater oh. and uh, and saw that. <laughs> Peter talked about it last week. So, Michael, what's your take on Mrs. Doubtfire? I don't have much to add except even more praise for Rob McClure, who oh, is so, so, so wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I guess I would say uh, um, I'm s- almost sorry to say that this show happened in the sense that I assume it will mean that there will never be a Broadway production of Where's Charlie with uh, Rob. And I was blessed to see him uh, in that, uh, in that role at Encores and, and, 
he was brilliant in the role. And of course, that's a vastly superior show uh, to this one, I'm, I would have to say. Uh, so uh, th- that's, a, that's a little bit of a thing that makes me sad. But, uh, but still, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, although it's got tremendous problems, is good enough that it does provide a wonderful vehicle for his immense talents. So I, I really would say, I've said this about many other shows, uh, but it truly would be worth it to see this, if only for him. Uh, and of course, he's not the only good thing in it. I I found the score very, very, very serviceable. Um, even uh, I, it seemed to me less good overall than the score that the same people wrote for uh, something rotten. Uh, and uh, it, it 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 seemed uh, it, it called to mind for me. Uh, spelling bee in the sense that I felt that music was added just to make it a musical. Uh, and it really was really not necessary. Uh, and I, I guess they felt that they didn't want to just do a not musical uh, stage adaptation of Mrs. Doubtfire, which is understandable, but um I, I I didn't think the music added anything. I have uh, probably what's going to be a controversial opinion. I think Jerry Zachs was a very bad choice to direct this show because I think his strengths are not what this show needed. I, I he is very good at the sort of old time, um, almost uh, you know, vaudevillian kind of comedy stuff uh, and keeping a show moving and, and, uh, and really sharpening the comedy, but not so good at the heart stuff. Uh, And I, and so I think that maybe with someone else, it would have been better. The show would have been better in that sense. Also, he does something here, which I really wish he would stop doing. It just, it just, to me, it's like nails on the blackboard. He keeps telling actors to fake laughter to obviously fake laughter um, in situations, uh, you know, like uncomfortable situations. So someone will say something uncomfortable and everyone else goes, ha, 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 you know, and I, I just can't stand that. Uh, so maybe that's a personal thing, but he did it in Hello, Dolly, of all things. And now he's doing it here again. And I, you know, <laughs> for, for what little he cares, <laughs> just, mm-hmm. just for me to say that I, I really don't like that at all. Um, the here's an interesting thing. Uh, the show when I saw it um, last week, uh, we were all let into the theater on time in a timely fashion, but the doors to the theater itself were not open. So. Uh, a huge percentage of the audience was amassed in the lobby, which is not that big. Mm. Um, And the doors didn't open until about 10 minutes before the stated start time of the show at 8 PM. And one of the ushers even said, uh, as she opened the doors, please don't rush. They're not going to start with that before everyone is in. And then do you know that the show started 20 minutes late? Wow. And I asked at intermission uh, why, and uh, one of the ushers told me it was because the cast had had a meeting. And I guess the only place that they can really have a meeting of the whole company is in the house. So they did. And that's why. And I, I do not know this, but I'm thinking that it might have had something to do with the fact uh, it might have been COVID related because four people. Uh, at the performance that I saw were not in the show. Mm. Uh, the role of Stuart Dunmire, 
uh, was played by Casey Garvin. Mark Evans was out. And uh, and then there were three other substitutions as well. Uh, so I hope it, you know, I mean, I hope it wasn't COVID, uh, but whatever it was, I guess it was something important enough for them to have a, a meeting that kept the audience waiting for 20 minutes once we, uh, you know, once after the, after the start time of the show. Um, I, uh, that, that was really, that was really unfortunate. And I, I, I should say no announcement whatsoever. I mean, can't you at least let people know what's going on? Uh, I, I don't think that's very nice to do to an audience. So I had, uh, I had, I guess, somewhat negative feelings going into <laughs> the performance. And I was glad that Rob McClure won me over, but maybe I was more sensitive to the many, many flaws in the show uh, because of having to be kept waiting all that time. So I, um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I would say uh, actually a friend just uh, messaged me today to say that he has uh, two young cousins and he usually brings them every year to see a show. And he asked me if he should bring them to this. And I said, yes, I, I said, despite my misgivings, I do think it's a, it is a very good family show. And it is certainly very funny in many places, even though some of the some of the jokes, uh, some of the jokes fall flat. Oh, and here's another interesting thing. I noticed that very, very tepid applause um, after almost all of the numbers when I saw the show. And I think it was partly because the music and lyrics just aren't that great. But also there was a very um, uh, nobody involved with this seemed know how to to know how to end numbers with buttons that would get applause. I mean, you know, nobody here is a neophyte. We have Lauren Lataro choreographing and Jerry Zachs directing. Uh, so that was very, very surprising to me. And I think that could be addressed just by working on the buttons of the songs a little bit more. If they care to do that, I think that would really help their applause meter to go up a lot. Hmm. So, um, uh, you know, uh, you had mentioned that the company meeting might have been about COVID. We've had mm -hmm. so many different uh, performances canceled in the last couple of weeks uh, due to COVID. Little Shop this weekend has been canceled mm -hmm. because of COVID um, uh, outbreaks um, in the uh, in the either the cast or the house staff or something along those lines. Um, uh, this is the new normal for right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, so, you know, best to check your social media uh or call telecharge or something like that before heading in to uh to see something. Um we were talking before we started about the Doubtfire cash recording. I guess um I I guess we we really haven't had any uh details about that just yet. Uh maybe it'll be on RCA because it looks like Doubtfire is controlled by Buena Vista, which is Disney, which has a relationship with RCA. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, but um, we'll have to see how that happens. But we also had news that uh, Diana, the musical, is closing. Yes. Uh, next Saturday or next Sunday, uh, but uh, um, in the next uh, week or so, mm -hmm. that it is closing, uh, which is very strange to close... Yeah, right, right, bef right before Christmas. Christmas yeah. Very strange. Mm -hmm. Very strange. Uh, just to, yet again, proving me wrong because I said they had deep pockets. So, <laughs> well, they want to keep them deep, apparently. Um, you know, so uh, yeah. it's too bad. Uh, as I 
said, um, uh, certainly it's no masterpiece, but I do not understand the hatred for it. Yeah, same yeah. here. So, uh, perhaps it's closing December 19th because somebody needs the theater? Could be. Anyway, Michael and Peter got to see Kimberly Akimbo. Uh, and Peter, why don't you get us started us on this Atlantic Theater Company off-Broadway production? Yes, um, Kimberly Akimbo is about um, a, a young girl who doesn't look young because she has that terrible disease that ages people at a remarkable rate. And most of these people die at 16. And Victoria Clark is very, very poignant when she points out that, uh, well, that that's the average, but it's not necessarily uh, what. Uh, every person with this disease is going to have happen to him or her. Uh, so she wants to be as optimistic as she possibly can. So she makes a friend at school, which is not easy to do when you have any type of disease or look a little different. So, um, and he's played by Justin Cooley. Terrific performance by this young new actor, sensational, honest the best type of acting. He doesn't seem like he's acting at all, mm -hmm. at all, at all. Magnificent performance in that way. So um, she makes a friend of, uh, of him and um, that's great. She needs it because boy, what's going on at home is real tough stuff. Stephen Boyer, who was so phenomenal in hand uh, to God, um, is her father and he's a drunk uh, and the type of person who hasn't even thought of going to AA. Um, mother, Ali Mozzie, another very talented uh, performer, plays um, the mother. And indeed, she has her problems, too. For one thing, she's had an operation for carpal tunnel syndrome, both at the same time on the arm. So she's got casts on her arms and Victoria has to tend to her every need. And she's quite pregnant, too, and isn't above reminding um, Kimberly that this time they hope the kid will turn out to be much different and healthier than she. And the audience moans at the insensitivity there as well. The audience should. So now if these two crazies aren't enough, one of the most astonishing performances you'll see in your lifetime by Bonnie Milligan, who was so good in head over heels, but here she plays a thoroughly amoral <laughs> aunt who doesn't have a shred of a scruple anywhere in her worldview or her life or her <laughs> um, she she is a hardened criminal and is very happy to be so and nothing is beyond her reach um, at one point she brings something into the apartment that you wouldn't expect to see in an apartment I'm not going to give away what it is but um, my girlfriend Linda said gee you know I, I can't imagine that she could possibly extract that and um, I'm, I'm being vague purposely and bring that into the apartment. And I said, I do not put anything past this woman at all. <laughs> she is that amoral. And uh, when she wants something done, she wants something done. Now I saw the play many moons ago and I looked it up on Wikipedia, hoping to find out this detail. I think what she does with this object is different from what she did in the play, but um to be frank, the type of thing she does here is a very illegal thing, which, by the way, I was a victim of some years ago, I should point out, uh, even though I'm not being specific. But where the show fails for me is at the beginning of the second act. 
And while I loved the first act and thought it was hilarious in every way that it wanted me to think it was hilarious, and especially Bonnie Milligan, and very touching at every moment where it wanted me to think it was touching. And again, both Victoria Clark and Justin Cooley made that happen. So even though I've seen my fill of musicals that have lockers in them, because that means we're in a high school, the fact remains that it was very, very entertaining. The book um, done by uh, David Lindsay Abair, who did the original play, and the lyrics, fine, really good lyricist. And Janine Tesori, once again, shows her range, because this does not seem to be the composer who did Carolina Change. I mean, every time we get a new score by Janine Tesori, we see a new color. And um, I think we're going to eventually see as many colors as Joseph had in his dream coat. And that's going to be good, too, needless to say. But what I hate in the second act is that she gets the the, uh, amoral aunt gets the teenagers involved in her crime. And worse, they go along willingly. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they need uh, costumes for the concert they're going to be doing. And that's their motivation. I think that's really lousy. I hate the fact that these kids so willingly go into this. The only exception is, again, this Justin Cooley character. He, he, go, he goes along with it, but very reluctantly. So the show takes a turn that I hated. And um, it does sort of get back on track as the second act continues. But that was a real blow to me to have that happen. Um, I I really wanted all the kids to say, "Uh uh-uh, even from the vantage point of self-protection, you know, I don't want to get involved because I don't want to go to jail, let alone, you know, no, this is a wrong thing to do. You are victimizing people. I wanted kids to say that, to step up to the plate and do that, and they don't. So that's what bothers me about uh, Kimberly Akimbo. Um, Also, Akimbo isn't her last name in the show. It's a different Italian name. I forget what it is, but um, the word akimbo is mentioned fleetingly um, very quickly, and I can't say that I caught where it had anything to do with um, it being the title of the show. Michael, perhaps you can help me on that. Did you get that at all? Uh, not specifically, and I uh, also can't. I thought I had the her Italian last name in my head, but it went out too. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, but I do completely agree with you about that uh, that plot point, that whole plot point, and I too don't remember. Peter, how that was dealt with in the play. Uh, first of all, let me say this was beautifully directed by Jessica Stone, who I, many of us first knew and loved as an actor. Uh, and I think it's wonderful that she has become such a wonderful director. Uh, the, uh, other than the, the huge flaw, which Peter just mentioned in the writing, which I completely agree with, completely agree with. And I was going to say the same thing. Um, uh, it's it's a very well-written show, and I guess this is another uh, fairly rare example of someone who started out as a uh, playwright or, or just a librettist and then turned out to be a really good lyricist because we had Michael Stewart, and then we had Tony Kushner, and, uh, <laughs> and now we have David Lindsay Abair. Uh, any others that leap to mind, Peter? No, not offhand. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that happens very often. It's two mm-hmm. different talents, but mm-hmm. some people have both, apparently. Yeah, uh, I think that's great. The uh, The original play, which I loved, 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 uh, uh, premiered at the Manhattan Theater Club in 2003. I hadn't forgotten 
how long ago that was. Uh, and it was directed by David Petrarca. And it, the, the cast of that featured Mary Louise Burke as Kimberly. Uh, John Gallagher Jr. played the Justin Cooley role. Uh, but in, in the play, uh, he has a different name. His name is Jeff. And I don't remember his last name here. He's named Seth Reedus in the musical. Uh, and just like uh, John Gallagher uh, gave a really beautiful breakout performance in that I completely agree about Justin Cooley. He is so wonderfully appealing on stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You just, you, you want him as your friend, uh, you know, or your, your boyfriend, if you're, if you're age appropriate and <laughs> sex appropriate or whatever, uh, uh, he's, he's the sweetest, the mm, sweetest, mm, uh, mm. And uh, I and everyone, I, I feel like everyone is talking about him. I had heard about his performance even before I saw the show. And for an off-Broadway musical like that, someone in a, you know, a young person in an off-Broadway musical like that to 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 get that kind of attention, it it really says so much for him. Um, the play also had Anna Gasteyer. Uh, as Deborah, the crazy aunt, uh, and uh, and like Peter, I, I yeah, I, I don't remember all of the details of her cr- criminal schemes in that one, but I don't think they were so. I don't think they were so crazy, and and there were not a whole bunch of kids in the play, so uh, that thing about getting the kids involved in the crime was not an issue in the play. Uh, I think that is an unfortunate change that was made and maybe they can, maybe they can rework this. Um, I, I really wish they could. I don't know how realistic that is, but everyone is talking Broadway for this show, this musical. So maybe they will give that a second thought. I think that would be great. Uh, and the show, uh, the play also had Jody Markell and Jake Weber in it. So uh, I, I really loved that. Uh, it, it had a, brilliant performance by Mary Louise Burke. And uh, there's one sense, I would say only one small way in which Victoria Clark might be said to be miscast. She's quite tall. Uh, and so you, I guess maybe it seems a little incongruous that uh, uh, because she's so tall, that makes her just look like an older grown woman. Whereas Mary Louise Burke is a tiny little thing. And it did seem believable that she was just a girl, you know, who had this disease, which by the way, the name is never mentioned. It's um, that the the name of that disease is, is progeria, but I, in the Wikipedia entry for the play, I know it's, it says that she has a disease like progeria. I think Mm -hmm. maybe that was because uh, the author, David Lindsay, Abair didn't want to, um, you know, have to stick with the, the, you know, with, with all of the actual, sure, yeah. uh, you know, mm-hmm. details. And he didn't yeah. want it to, to be accused of uh, giving a, you know, an inaccurate portrait of progeria. So I'm guessing maybe that's why they don't actually name it. Uh, but that's, that's more or less the kind of disease we're talking about. Um, I, I saw the show just, uh, just last night and I really, Loved it, despite that that big big flaw. I do hope they, I do hope they fix that. Hmm. All right. So that is um, Kimberly Akimbo, and that's playing. It got extended uh, through January fifteenth uh, down at the Linda Gross Theater, at, um, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So, Peter, you also got over to Playwrights Horizons to see uh, Selling Kabul. So, tell us about this. 
Yeah. Um, I'm not sure this is the right title for this play um, because I'm not sure there's much selling that goes on in it, but boy, um, it certainly sold me as a terrific, terrific, terrific evening in the theater. Now this is not in playwrights um, uh, horizons, main stage theater, though I think it deserves to be. Certainly it um, is a very, very powerful work and um, it does have a terrific performance in it as well. And we'll talk more about that as time goes on. But the problem here is that there is a man who is a fugitive. He has helped, helped the Americans and the Taliban um, is not happy with this. Needless to say, we're in Kabul. So, so there he is, and he is essentially under his own house arrest. Now, it isn't quite, um, <laughs> he's, it's more of a house arrest because of the fact that his sister and her husband are harboring him. And she is super, super careful because she knows knows what can happen if indeed he is caught. She tells him not even to turn on the TV because if he turns on the TV, perhaps the flickering light of the TV will be seen through the closed blinds, granted, but maybe something will sneak through and somebody will know that somebody's in there while she's out shopping and the husband's out working or whatever. So, you know, we say a lot of bad things about this country and we understand why, but I'm telling you, we seem very lucky when we see what's going on over there and how these people are really, really suffering. That is made very, very, very clear in this phenomenal play by Sylvia Corey. Now, um, there's a smart complication here because Tarun, that's the name of the guy who um, has helped the U.S. troops, who's uh, self-incarcerated, is becoming a father. His wife, who is on the outside, is giving birth to a baby. Now, needless to say, he wants to see that baby, but he can't leave the house. Or can he? Or will he? I mean, when anybody comes to the door, he hides in a closet. It's, it's become so in your gym. I mean, it's almost like he lived, that's another room of the house. So, and what you have here is a bit of a cliche, I'll grant you, but the nosy neighbor from next door, the talkative one who comes and stays too long, and the poor guy's in the closet, and you, 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 you want her to leave so the poor guy can get out, you know, all that kind of business. So um, I am telling you, there is instinting, unstinting conflict in this play. Whenever you think that, wow, here's the major conflict in the play, this is it. No, there's one that's worse, and there's one that's worse, and there's one that's worse after that. It's amazing. It's amazing. So that is the power of selling Kabul. However, however, this is a play that I would like to see might. Why? Now, small space. I don't think there are 200 seats in this theater. Why do I want to see it might? Because what I want to have happen is I want these people to whisper at all times. They don't. They're much too loud and their arguments between brother and sister, because he says you're overreacting. No, I'm not. They'll kill you. All that kind of talk. And there's a lot of that talk in the play, but it's much too loud. What an effective thing it would be to have a play where people whisper at all times. And we can hear the whispering if the miking is good um, and the sound design would get some sort of award as well. But that's what I think should happen in this play. And that is the one flaw that um, makes you say, wait, 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 they would never talk this loud. Also, 
There's an inconsistency about the locked door, I have to say. The door is locked um, with three locks um, many times, but other times when um, it's just not locked at all and that neighbor just barges in, I think that's a, a bit of a problem too. All right, tiny things, get the mics, lock the door, but boy, the writing of this play is so powerful. And thank God, wherever you stand in the spectrum of a citizen of America, thank God you live here. <laughs> All right. And that is uh, down at the Peter J. Sharp Theater, uh, playing through December 23rd. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, I caught up with the West Side Story movie, and I just wanted to throw my two cents in here that mm. uh, that. I really loved it, and mm-hmm. I, 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 I didn't find anything uh, really to fault with it. Um, I thought it was a, a new, fresh take on West Side Story, and I did sort of miss some of the dialogue that Michael was mentioning last last week. That was, uh, you know, the Tony Kushner has reinvented the show from uh, the the dialogue from the bottom up, mm-hmm. uh, and it has got some. I think it's really wonderful. It's not, uh, didn't try to take the stage version and put it on film or vice versa. Uh, it's just that it, it's a different medium and they had different abilities and they took advantage of the uh, most they could. Uh, Michael, I was going to ask you, uh, Mike, uh, Mike Feist? Yes. Feist. Mike Feist. Did, did he do his own dancing? Oh, think? absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to mention him. He uh, was on Broadway in Newsies um, in the ensemble, but he was also the understudy for the lead, uh, which is, I, I guess, not a major dancing dancing role. But uh, and then he was in, of course, Dear Evan Hansen, uh, creating the role of Connor. So those are his two, bro- two Broadway credits. But there's a wonderful interview with him in the Washington Post, uh, which I unfortunately, I think they're behind a paywall. So you can't read it unless you have a, a subscription, but uh, it opens up by saying when screenwriter Tony Kushner reflects on his favorite memory from the filming of West Side Story, uh, uh, it's not uh, a visual. Uh, it's not about the director's visual mastery nor a tune from Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim's canonical songbook. Rather, he fixates on an unassuming moment of onset cleanup. It came after the shooting of an early scene in which Mike Feist's riff and his Upper West Side gang, the Jets, splash paint on a mural of the Puerto Rican flag to antagonize the Sharks, their territorial rivals. As Kushner lingered on set and crew members got to work scrubbing the paint off the mural, he glanced over and caught an unexpected sight. One of the people washing it was Mike. And it really wasn't in any way done for display. It was something that he needed to do because he felt terribly about what his character had just done and he needed to do something to make himself feel okay about it. So uh, also in this interview, Mike describes himself as a blue collar working theater actor. And he says that uh, guys like him don't usually get to be in movies. (laughs) So he's very, very thrilled um, with the whole, with the whole, way that this panned out and it is such a beautiful achievement as as uh james just said i did want to clarify uh uh, um some slight misinformation i gave last week apparently 80 percent of the soundtrack uh uh, 
of the music and the soundtrack, according to Variety, was recorded by Gustavo Dudamel conducting the New York Philharmonic. And then apparently what happened was uh, the bulk of that was done and then uh, the pandemic happened. And so uh, the remainder of what they needed to record orchestrally was done with Dudamel conducting the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Um, so that's the history on that. And of course, it's great to have um, the, the New York Philharmonic in it, particularly because that was the orchestra that was led and conducted for many decades by Leonard Bernstein. Uh, I found that... Uh Brian Darcy James was really (laughs) such a wonderful addition to the movie. He's such a good cop. He's such a good Irish cop. Yes, he was. (laughs) Really, it's very wonderful. I kind of felt they should have changed his name, maybe, but that wasn't going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. So, uh, I I really have nothing but raves for West Side Story. I'm really I really love with this movie, and I can't wait to get the uh, the soundtrack to it as well. It's just Wonderfully amazing. The uh, I was looking at the credits at the end. They seem to have shot most of this in Brooklyn. Um, um, apparently, some in Brooklyn, some in Jer- Patterson, New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some, some. Uh, I forget the other locations, but but yeah. the the neighborhood. Uh, rub- I don't even know what to call it, a neighborhood that was in such. Destruction. Does anybody know? Was that actually in the construction of Lincoln Center? If people still lived in in and among that construction while it was Thank happening? Thank you for mentioning that because I was going to say if anyone who sees this movie, I urge you to watch of all things the documentary The Opera House, which is uh. about the construction of the new Metropolitan Opera. Uh, and all of Lincoln Center. And they have interviews with two guys who lived in that neighborhood, which apparently was called San Juan Hill. Mm -hmm. Uh, It did have a lot of Puerto Ricans, obviously, but it also had, uh, you know, working class, lower class people of all ethnicities. The two guys who were interviewed uh, in the in that movie who lived in that neighborhood as children, one of them is Puerto Rican, but the other one is Irish. And it just, you know, it really points up that whole thing that uh, that's handled so wonderfully in this movie, how really the the Jets and the Sharks don't realize um, that, you know, in in a sense, they should team up. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're they're not their enemies. You know, there are other people, other forces that are their enemies that are destroying their neighborhoods. Uh, so. Uh, it's it you know it just points up the tragedy of and then of course the irony of that Lincoln Center was built there and Lincoln Center was where the New York Philharmonic you know plays <laughs> uh, mm. for first at Philharmonic Hall then called Avery Fisher Hall then now called Geffen Hall and so all of that is tied in and there's even in that Opera House movie there's footage of after everything had been leveled. Uh, on that site and before they started building anything amidst the rubble, basically there's Bernstein conducting the Philharmonic mm. um, with Leontine Price and Robert Merrill singing. And they don't, he doesn't play anything from West Side Story. That would have been too much, just too much of a, uh, of a, of an irony. But then of course, that's where the original movie, uh, the location scenes, some of the location scenes for that were filmed right around that time. Hmm. The last thing I want to say about West Side Story is not really about West Side Story, but um, uh, when I went to see it, there were 
20 minutes or so of previews for other movies. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, West Side Story was playing 2.30 or, as, or something like that. So with 20 minutes of previews, made it nearly three hours. But one of the previews was for Peter Dinklage's Cyrano uh, oh, movie. Yes. Uh, and uh, is this an adaption of that off-Broadway play that was short-lived downtown? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think more, it's more that they always plan to make this as a movie, and they did that off-Broadway thing as sort of a... Workshop? Yeah, almost, I, I would say, yeah. Well, That's the, the impression the, I get. You know, uh, it can be said about most trailers, the trailer looks amazing. Huh. So uh, it makes it very interesting, but I was like, oh, this was the kind of disastrous off-Broadway thing, but, I mean, Peter Dinklage's voice, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he just, uh, so the Cyrano thing, I'll throw a link to the trailer in the show notes. I also found the Opera House documentary on PBS, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. So that really wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. It's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. You can listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? I do, but before I do, I do want to say that uh, I had promised to give the name of that actress who was so wonderful in selling Kabul and I neglected to. So, her name is Marjan. That's her first name. It's like Mary Jane without the Y and the E. Nesha. N-E-S-H-A. And, um, boy, sensational. All right. Last week's question. If you looked at the window card or the original cast album of this two-month flop, not the off-Broadway revival cast album, mind you, but only the original Broadway cast album, you just might, might assume from the logo that the show had a six-word title and not a four-word title. What's the show and what's the explanation? Well, Herb Gardner's logo for Floor of the Red Menace showed a female picketer holding a sign that said, I am to the left of the words Floor of the Red Menace. <laughs> the print was tiny on the sign, but people would be well within their rights to assume that the show was actually named I Am Floor of the Red Menace. Tony Janicki vaulted back into first place only minutes after our broadcast, followed by Paul Whitty, who, to be fair, was traveling with his lovely wife, Michelle, back to Wichita and couldn't know the question until they landed. Uh, then came Isaac Blevins and Brigadoon, but that was it. So people thought this was a tough question. I don't think that this one's going to be any easier. All right. From 1906 through 1987, a name could be found in the cast list in playbills in every one of those nine decades. It could be found as few as twice in the 60s, but as many as 37 times in the 20s. What's the name? Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, in our musical moment this week, what do we have? Well, I thought we might celebrate the birthday today of Brandon Maggart. 
uh, oh. who is a Facebook friend of mine. <laughs> and mine too. <laughs> yes, uh, wonderful guy uh, with kind of an amazing resume of mostly flops and one hit <laughs> and mm-hmm. one soft hit. Uh, he m- made his Broadway debut in the legendary, notorious one night flop Kelly. In mm-hmm. 1965, mm-hmm. Uh, then he was in Leonard Silliman's New Faces of 1968. Uh, then came the one hit, Applause, in which he played Buzz Richards. And uh, after that, he was in Hay Fever, a 1970 production of Hay Fever, which ran a month. Um, he was in Lorelei, uh, which didn't do too badly, ran about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we interrupt this program. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then musical chairs, which ran mm-hmm. a week or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the Julie Stein musical One Night Stand, which never officially opened. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that none of the failure those failures had anything to do with Mr. Mag- Magart, because <laughs> uh, he really is a wonderful, very talented guy uh, who just maybe didn't have that great luck. But uh, I'm glad that he got into applause. And uh, the, our musical moment to close the show is Good Friends. Uh, from that score, which he sings with Lauren Bacall and Ann Williams uh, in the role of Buzz. Uh, so please enjoy that. And by the way, he, um, uh, aside from his other accomplishments, Mr. Maggart is the father of two incredibly mm, talented mm. women, Maud Maggart and Fiona Apple. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's, uh, I think those are some really great contributions and that, that we song- celebrate. That song is so quintessentially Charles Strauss. It has that wonderful Charles Strauss bounce. And I really believe that if I had to list my hundred favorite show songs, it would show up on the list. Ah. I'm glad you're playing it. Great. Mm -hmm. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You got a good life. Think about that. When you got good friends You're getting sentimental You've got it all Hold on, you're getting to me For when life is cruel And they call you fool You're not alone If you got good friends On whom you can call good friends Who couldn't care less If you're a failure Or a success you for you, not your money or your gorgeousness. Friendship is a ring, a circular thing. It never ends. So kick off your shoes. You're with good friends. You're with good friends. Life is full of frets. Remorse and regrets, doors that are locked When you've got good friends, you've got the key As you go through life, there's three things you need Money is one, number two is sex All the way, you know number three Good friends who really don't care If you're a swinger I know that you too 
you never could do one mean thing to me. Oh, I wish I'd never drained that tank. Friendship is a ring, a circular thing. It never ends, and we've got it. Empty tanks, what have I done to my oh. good friends? Good God. 